This is Nick Treadwell and you are listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville. Chapter 12 Remo, who had been knocked unconscious by a right-hand blow to the head by Sheila Feinberg, a right hand he never saw, came to as the boat reversed its engines to bring itself to a stop. He felt the boat bump against another boat. As he shook his head, trying to clear his vision, he felt Sheila's strong hand grip his right biceps, squeezing hard. It hurt. Come on, she said, and pushed him to the rail of the Silverton cabin cruiser. It was dark now, and the salt smell from the sound was stronger. As if the daylight's passing had removed a lid from it, Sheila helped Remo across the railing of her boat to another, smaller speedboat. All the while, she held his arm. Remo decided enough was enough. He yanked his arm away, but it didn't work. Her fingers, like talons, still bit into his muscle. Was he really that weak? He wondered. He tried again and Sheila said, Keep that up and you'll be back asleep. Is that what you want? No, what I want is a cigarette. Sorry, no smoking. In the darkness, Remo could see the outline of some large box on the back of the boat. Over here, she said, steering Remo. As he got closer, he saw the box was an iron-barred cage, almost the size of a side-by-side washer-dryer combination. Piled on top of it were black drapes. With her free hand, Sheila opened the door of the cage and pushed Remo toward it. In there! Is this really necessary? Remo asked. I can't spend my time worrying about you trying to hop overboard. Get in. And if I say no, then I'll put you in anyway, Sheila said. I'm really very strong, you know. Even in the dark, her teeth and eyes glinted, picking up the faint glow of faraway lights and turning them into sharp, shining dagger beams. Remo decided to try it. He yanked his arm away, this time spinning his body while he did it, to put the full force of his weight behind the move. It was the kind of move he knew so well. He never thought about it before, but now he found it necessary to plot each step as he did it. Muscle memory, the ability of the body to do routine tasks without the brain being called in to direct, had deserted him. It was this skill that characterized and united the great athlete, the great typist, and the great seamstress. Memory of what the body must do was stamped into the muscles and bypassed by the brain. He smiled to himself as it worked. As his body spun, he felt his arm slip from Sheila Feinberg's hand. He was free, but his back was toward her, and that was something the art of sin and Jew warned against. Before he could remember and move away, Sheila was on his back. Remo felt strong hands around his throat pressing, 
searching for the arteries in his neck. Then he felt the pulse throbbing heavily in his throat as the blood flow to his brain closed off. Darkness spread into his head. Remo dropped heavily onto the deck of the boat. He could feel his body hit as his eyes closed but then was done. He did not feel Sheila push him into the cage, lock the door with a padlock, then drape the sides with the thick black curtains. As Remo slept, the boat started and Sheila sped away, leaving behind the big boat she had used to escape from Falcroft, leaving it to drift aimlessly with the current through Long Island Sound. She turned due east and gave the boat full throttle. She roared through the night for the 90-minute run to Bridgeport. Remo woke again when the boat stopped. He felt Sheila Feinberg's hand reach through the bars of the cage and clamp around his throat. She hissed, Now we can do this easy, or we can do it hard. Easy is, just you be quiet and you can stay awake. Hard is, you make a sound and I put you back to sleep. But if I have to do it again, I'm going to leave you with some new scars. Remo opted for easy. Maybe if he caused her no trouble, she'd give him what he really wanted in life, a cigarette. Then a steak, rare, with juice running out, the kind called black and blue. He had once gotten in a restaurant in Weehawken, New Jersey. Remo remembered that steak for a moment, savouring its taste in his mind. Then he remembered where he was and who he was with, and the idea of rare meat made him shudder. Cheyenne supervised as Smith removed the bodies from the hallway outside Remo's room, then went to his own room, refusing to talk to Smith. Smith was too busy to talk anyway. He went directly to his office. Smith's name was unknown in any government circle. In no Washington office did a picture of him hang on the wall, a photographic offering to protect the owner from lightning, flood and firing. But in his anonymous way, he commanded more powerful armies than any other man in America. More of the levers that turned the wheels of government were brought together in his office than anywhere else. Thousands of people were on his direct payroll. Thousands of others worked for other agencies, but their reports came to cure, even though none of them knew it, and none would have obeyed a direct order from Smith if it had been hand-delivered hand by a Marine regiment. The young president who had chosen Smith to head the secret organization, Cure, had selected wisely. He had picked a man to whom personal prestige and power meant nothing. He was interested only in enough power to do his job well. His character was constructed in such a way that he would never abuse that power. Now Smith was using that power. In minutes, military helicopters were crisscrossing Long Island Sound looking for a 27-foot Silverton with a Bimini Bridge. Federal agents were soon watching bridges, tunnels and toll booths between Rye, New York and Boston, Massachusetts. 
They had been told they were looking for a diplomat who had been abducted after being granted asylum in the United States. His name was secret, but he had dark hair and eyes, high cheekbones, and very thick wrists. The rest was hush-hush. Airport security services and maritime inspectors at seaports all over the east were put on alert for the same kind of man. All they knew was that it was important to find him. After putting all those forces to work, Smith sat in his office to wait. He spun his chair around, looking out at the waters of Long Island Sound. He was not too confident because government was like the water at which he stared. The water's action could be predicted because its ebb and flow was on its own schedule and its own clock. But control it? It was that way with government. Sometimes you could predict its flow, but only a fool believed he could control it. Just as the waters of the sound... They had come and gone for hundreds and thousands of years. Hundreds and thousands of years from now, someone else would be sitting in Smith's chair, looking out at the waters. They would still be moving in their own rhythm, in their own time. The telephone rang. It was the wrong phone and wasn't the call for which Smith had hoped. Yes, Mr. President, he said. I didn't think I'd be making any more calls to you, the president said. But just what the hell is going on? What do you mean, sir? Smith asked. I'm getting reports. It seems like the whole peck-headed government has gone on some kind of alert. Are you responsible for that? Yes, sir, I am. Why? When you're supposed to be doing something about that Boston mess. This is part of the Boston mess, as you put it, said Smith. I thought your secret weapon would have resolved all that by now anyway. There was sarcasm in the president's soft, honey-coated voice. That secret weapon has been injured and captured, Smith said. It's important that he be found before... Before he talks, the president interrupted. Yes, or before he is killed. The president sighed. If he talks, he brings down the government. Not just my administration, but the entire concept of constitutional government. I guess you know that. I know, sir. How can we stop him from talking? By locating him. And then what? If there is any danger of his revealing what he should not, I will handle it, Smith said. How? asked the president. I don't think you'd want to know the answer to that, Mr. President, Smith said. The president, who understood full well that he had just heard a man promise to kill another if it became necessary for the country's best interests, said softly, Oh, I'll leave it with you. That would be best. We have destroyed some of the Boston creatures, that should reduce the death toll there. Cutting back his small consolation, I don't think the American people are going to be comforted if I tell them we've managed to cut the murder rate from mutated people by 67%, from six a day to two a day. No, sir, I guess not. We are continuing to work on it, Smith said.
Good night, the president said. When this is all over, assuming we survive, I think I would like to meet you. Good night, sir, Smith said noncommittedly. The next call was the one Smith wanted, a Coast Guard official who thought he was talking to an FBI agent for, for Westchester County, reported a helicopter had found a 29-foot Silverton. It was empty and drifting through the sand without lights. There was no one aboard. The owner was a New Jersey dentist who said he sold the boat only eight hours earlier for $27,000 cash. The buyer was a young man who wore a gold sunburst medallion around his neck. Smith thanked the man and hung up. That was that, a dead end. The man with the sunburst medallion had been one of the tiger people. Smith had shot him in the upstairs hallway outside Remo's room. That trail was cold and dead. Smith waited at his telephone for the rest of the night but it did not ring again.